welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. So good to see each and every one of you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last Sunday, we looked at the mission and the message of the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The mission is to proclaim and guard the truth. The message is Jesus Christ as the revelation of godliness. Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament question, how can God be righteous or be the righteous judge of all the earth and... Yet, let sinners, ungodly men, go unpunished. How can he do that? Also, he answers the question, how can God with us ever be a reality when we all have fallen short of his holiness, stained by sin and unable to scrub ourselves clean on our own? Jesus, the revelation of godliness, fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament through his life, death, and resurrection. And now he welcomes all who follow him into a new relationship, a new covenant in his blood. This relationship or covenant is not like the old covenant with its many requirements of do not handle, do not taste, or do not touch. Instead, Jesus has fulfilled the law of Moses and now calls on all people to trust in his righteous fulfillment all who trust in jesus immediately come under his spiritual kingdom or reign and under his reign there is joy and freedom that he has won for us this is the mission of the church to proclaim and guard the sacred message that jesus christ is lord he has conquered he has overcome He is godliness. He reigns over us and He is coming again. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, through Paul warns his readers, Christians, about those in the church of Ephesus and other churches who denied the extent to which Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and those who denied that there is truly freedom in Christ. Let's read those verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. With this in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this local church. Thank You for all those who have come out and braved the cold on a, a winter morning. Thank You that hearing Your word, and worshiping you together 
is of greater value to them than comfort. I pray that you would bless each one here, that through your word and the working of the Holy Spirit, that each one would be blessed and that they would grow in the knowledge and the joy of their God, that we would celebrate together in the victory that Christ has won and that we would together would learn how to guard against any who would try and take away our joy and freedom in Christ. Would you do this today for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. In our day and age, we are very familiar with signs giving us directions. Whether it's a sign directing us to exit here for the N2 or a robot turning green. I almost said traffic light, but it's a robot, right? (laughs) Or most notorious of all is the big red stop sign that really means yield. (laughs) These signs help us and guide us as we navigate this life because we understand what they are saying and why it is best to take their advice. But the sign up on the screen may not be familiar to you. It reads, Danger, Impact Area, Do Not Enter. It's pretty clear that someone doesn't think you should go any further in this direction, but you may not understand why. It just gives the reason, Danger, Impact Area. Your first thought might be that a meteorite has landed or has come out of space and has landed in these woods and the government is just trying to cover themselves so that nobody falls into this big hole and then sues the government because they didn't protect them. So if that's the case, we might as well carefully, paying attention to what we're doing, walk into the woods and see what we can find. After all, who knows if we'll ever get another chance to see something that fell out of outer space. But this sign isn't warning about a rock that has fallen from space. The first time I was confronted with this sign was during military training, and I was walking in woods just like this. And although I had never seen it before, I knew exactly what it meant, and it sent a chill down my spine. This sign surrounds the perimeter of a large portion of military training area called the impact area. This is the designated area where explosive training rounds are supposed to land. So every time an artillery, artillery uh, round lands, it's supposed to, at least, land in here. Every time a tank fires, that projectile goes crashing through these trees. Every time an attack helicopter fires a missile, it's supposed to explode in here. And maybe even more concerning is that buried under the pine needles are decades of old training munitions, some of which failed to detonate the first time they were fired. And now they're just waiting for the right amount of pressure to set them off. With this new information in mind, the temptation to stroll, you know, casually through the impact area isn't nearly as inviting as it was before. Correct knowledge of the danger stopped me in my tracks and protected me from departing the path. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul puts up a warning sign 
created by the Holy Spirit Himself. Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. What follows is not a quote from any specific portion of Scripture. Instead, this is a summary of previous warnings and a statement of what the Spirit of God had revealed to Paul. Several years before this, the writing, before the writing of 1 Timothy, the Spirit of God revealed to Paul that false teachers would arise from within the church in Ephesus. In Acts 20, Paul meets with the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus, and warns them about what would happen. He says in Acts 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Unfortunately, this was not an isolated incident just in Ephesus. Throughout church history, the truth has been under attack from those outside the church and even from prominent figures within the church. Paul's shocking words in Acts 20 make it clear that even some of the Ephesian elders would ignore this warning sign and wander off into false teaching, dragging others along with them. There is even the implication that these teachers knew that what they were teaching was different from what was revealed by God through the prophets and apostles. They were speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. These teachers changed the truth specifically to attract a following for themselves. Their purpose was not to proclaim the unaltered truth that brings God glory. Instead, their purpose was to rob the church of God of worshipers and then turn them into man-worshippers. If you follow the teachings of men and reject the clear words of God, then you are actually a man-worshipper. Someone who proclaims in their heart and through their actions that you see that guy over there, that teacher, his words are way more beautiful, way more worthy of my devotion than the outdated words of God. Paul goes even further to tell us where these twisted teachings of men really come from. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul rips back the curtain and reveals what is really going on. Those who depart from the faith, from the clear teachings of Scripture, are in reality devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These false teachers thought that that the disciples they were gathering were becoming part of their own little kingdom, but in reality, false teachers are just the playthings of demons. Merely puppets that the devil uses in an attempt to destroy anything good 
that God is making. False teachers are in reality the middlemen between humanity and hell. Remember what we saw last week. The devil's mission is to turn the church of the living God into a den of hypocrites who have departed from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful deceitful spirits and teaching as if it were the truth, the teachings of demons. Paul is not using the word spirit and demons simply as a scare tactic. This is the battle that rages around every single church. Will our church, as we saw last week, be a pillar and buttress of the truth? Or will we sadly become just another middleman between humanity and hell? But here's the tricky part. How do we identify the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons? I seriously doubt there are many people who claim the name of Christ, yet also claim to be openly devoting themselves to demons. Usually those who depart from the faith but still claim to be a Christian are following a human teacher who comes to them disguised as a servant of righteousness. Paul affirms in verse 2 that some were being led astray or led away into demonic teachings through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. But again, this is the difficult part. Because their insincerity lies seared and seared or cauterized consciences are not always immediately evident. How can a Christian discern between false teachers and teachers of the truth? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, we hear these words from Jesus. He says, Beware of false prophets who come in or come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus repeats the same phrase twice in this passage. You will recognize them by their fruits. The image of a tree bearing fruit is common in the New Testament. The tree represents the person, and the fruit represents their their visible life, their words, deeds, and attitudes. Jesus is saying that a tree may look healthy at first, but but as its fruits develop and grow, you will be able to discern between a healthy tree and a diseased tree. The implication being that a teacher may look great, on the outside, but as you do life with them, the true condition of their heart will become evident through the outworking of their life. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, we get a glimpse of the fruit that will become evident among false teachers. Peter says, they, these false teachers, will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many, the disciples, many of the disciples will follow their sensuality and become, uh, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Peter has highlighted three areas that are, are reliable signs of false teachers. Pride, sexual sin, and the love of money. Pride, because they even deny the Master, Jesus, who bought them. False teachers often attack the identity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They deny the truth of God. Sexual sin, because it is only by walking in the Spirit that any of us can deny the flesh its every carnal craving. Imagine trying to do this for a lifetime only as a mere religious pretense. The deception will eventually come crashing down. The love of money. If the teacher is using their platform to build their own financial kingdom, rather than building the kingdom of God, then you can know and discern that they are filled with greed and are exploiting people with false words. Pride, sexual sin, and the love of money, these three things should be ringing bells in our ears. Didn't we just see in 1 Timothy 3 how essential it was that your elders, your teachers, be free from these things? Those who lead and teach the church must be gentle and humble, not filled with pride. They must be above reproach and a one-woman man. And they cannot be in love with silver, as Paul says. A person's outward life will often reveal the disease of their heart. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, Paul will offer another clear example of how to discern false teachers. Verses 1 and 2 are general statements about false teachers, but in verse 3, Paul specifies what the Ephesian church was facing. He says, These false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. There are two things we should notice about the message of these false teachers. First, as we saw in chapter 1, there was a strong desire among some to return to the law of Moses. Even though Jesus and the apostles repeatedly affirmed that the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, even though they affirmed this, some still had a longing to live out their religion through adherence to tangible, a tangible set of rules such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This rule following would gain them nothing but rather brought doubt upon the genuineness of their faith in Christ alone to save them. In in his letter to the Galatians, Paul reminds them in chapter 2 that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And again, if righteousness were through the law, 
that Christ died for no purpose. And then in Galatians 5, Paul shows the gravity of trying to go back to the law and add Christ to it or add the law to Christ. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Anyone who places their faith in circumcision, dietary laws, religious days, or any type of religiosity, you are placing your hope, faith, trust in these things, then you are severed from Christ. They have departed from the faith. Does this mean that those people were once saved and now are somehow unsaved? No. He is saying that those who place their trust in these things were never of us and that is why they have gone out from us. Amen. This is the danger that many in the Ephesian church were in. False teachers had crept in who were teaching that you needed Jesus and Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and dietary laws. Jesus and an Abrahamic bloodline. Jesus and asceticism. You may ask, what is asceticism? This is the second thing to notice about the false teachers being described in 1 Timothy 4. They forbid others from enjoying God-given pleasure. When Paul says that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, he is saying that these men were teaching that sexual pleasure within marriage and enjoying a flavorful meal was debased, unholy, unclean, and unworthy of a true follower of God. This is a common form of asceticism. It could be defined as religiously denying yourself all pleasure. And typically is practiced because of the belief that pleasure is unholy. Many in the Christian church have believed this lie to some extent or another. Thinking that pleasure is somehow of the devil. In church history there were those who wore rags and crawled on all fours eating grass like animals to be more holy and free from pleasure in the church. 
There were some who lived for years at the top of pillars to get away from the pleasure of being free to do whatever they want, to raise themselves somehow above the mundane, ordinary pleasures of life and get closer to God. These are people in the church. And there are many today who reject marriage as below them, who wear rough clothes and refuse themselves even the least amount of flavoring in their food, all in an attempt to somehow get closer to God and keep the defiling stains of pleasure from sticking to them. This is happening in and amongst those who claim the name of Christ today. Sadly, in many churches, these ascetics have been praised and elevated as the pinnacle of godliness. Even though most of them completely miss the message of Scripture and fail to provide the actual proof of godliness, a genuine love for God and His family. These men and women believe that all pleasure is beneath true godliness. But it wouldn't take anyone long to realize that in reality, every good thing on this earth was given to mankind by God. Simply opening to the first book of the Bible would bring great clarity to this issue. In Genesis, we see that God created Adam and Eve the way they are physically. God ordained the first marriage. And then commanded them to start having children. God created every fruit bearing tree and vine. God created the animals and then gave them to man to eat. And God designed our bodies with the ability to taste and feel. And on and on the good gifts from God could go. Pleasure is not an invention of our enemy. Our enemy, the devil, is only able to twist, distort, and corrupt what God has made good. God is the one who has given pleasure as a good gift to humanity. Pleasure that can be experienced and enjoyed at the right time and in the right way. Looking back at the text, Paul will continue this thought. In verse 3, he says that these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It is possible that the remainder of this sentence and the verses that follow only have food in mind, but even if that is the case, Paul is only using food as one example of a good gift from God that is to be received with thanksgiving. The application of Paul's teaching applies to marriage, food, and every other good thing God created. Paul says that God created this earth with all its abundance for mankind. And specifically, this earth with all its beauty and pleasure was created by God for those who believe And know the truth. Why? Why is pleasure specifically for those who know and love God? 
Because only when you understand and follow God's way, enjoying God's good gifts with thanksgiving, is God glorified in us as He intended. Think with me briefly about a father with his child, which is a common biblical depiction of God and those who love Him. When my family and I moved into our home here in George, most of my backyard was covered with these little tiny sharp rocks that people use for ground cover. My children would go out into the yard and attempt to run around barefoot on these rocks. And I kept seeing them tiptoeing around, trying not to puncture their feet on these rocks. As I stood there, watching my children, desiring for them to be filled with joy and happiness as they live under my roof, an an overwhelming desire started filling up inside of me. I desired to give them grass. And for the next six months, I labored, moving what seemed to be a small mountain of rocks, breaking up hardened soil, bringing in a couple mountains of topsoil, and then finally, finally throwing down grass seed. And you would think my labors would be done there. Well, they weren't, because in November 2021, here comes the great rainstorm and flood of George, and it took all that topsoil and grass seed and washed it downhill into my pool. (laughs) So after everything dried up, I then began again because of this desire. Then after months of effort, finally, and months of patiently watching the grass seeds grow, I was finally able to give them grass. After all my effort, after working tirelessly with my hands to provide something good for my children, the thing that would have brought me most joy is to see my children running barefoot and laughing while enjoying the grass under their feet as intended. But what would bring me most disappointment? It would disappoint me if Emma, my six-year-old daughter, looked at the grass and said, Thanks, Dad, but because I love you so much, I'm not going to play in the grass. Or maybe, Dad, the grass sure looks nice, but I think a true daughter should always be somber and avoid laughter. Or perhaps worst of all, Dad, look, someone came and stole all your rocks. Can you believe they planted all that nasty green grass? Out of love for you, I will never, ever step on that grass. Let me assure you, these thoughts never cross the minds of my children. Often little children are more understanding of the love of a father than full-grown Christians. God, our Father, created every good thing on this earth to be enjoyed by those who know and love Him. He did this so that His children with beaming, joyful faces will turn to Him and proclaim, Thank you, 
Father. This is what pleases God. This thanksgiving brings God glory. Paul says in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is essential for Christian living. The opposite of thanksgiving is indifference, contempt, ungratefulness, or doubt. These words literally define the attitude of those who do not know or believe the truth. Before the Christian life itself is but a good gift from God that we are undeserving of. The sun and stars, grass and rivers, food and drink, work and rest, marriage and sex, all are good gifts from God that draw our hearts to Him and bring words of praise to our lips. The Christian life is a life filled with thanksgiving to our God, the giver of every good gift. If our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, then we are free to receive at the right time and in the right way all of God's good gifts. Paul says in verse 5, For it, speaking of everything created by God, is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How are things made holy by the word of God and prayer? Does this mean that we are to open our Bibles, read over and pray over pork, and then, and only then, it is okay for us to eat it? I believe this would be a misunderstanding of the point. The point Paul is making is that God, the author of Scripture, the one who breathed out these words, has declared the creation, those things made for man's enjoyment, to be clean, holy, sacred, for all those who pray to God with thanksgiving, in their heart. God's own words and our thanksgiving make enjoyment of every good gift and act of praise to God. For those of you who might be uncomfortable with all this talk about pleasure or enjoyment, get comfortable with it. Get comfortable with it. This is the language of Scripture. Yes, there will be days of suffering for the Christian. Yes, there will be days of sorrow and grief. Yes, the Christian is called to pick up their cross and follow Christ no matter what. Yes, this is a pilgrimage and a wilderness wandering. But that does not mean that God is somehow more pleased with us when we go looking to create sorrow, suffering, and pain in our lives because we are rejecting His good gifts as unholy. If you are fasting from food to sharpen your prayer life and to get your eyes turned toward heaven, then by all means fast for a set time to the glory of God. And then when you're done with your fasting for the glory of God, Sit down and feast at the bountiful table God has given us, filled with a heart 
of thankfulness. Surely of all people on this green earth, Christians should be able to demonstrate how to live in harmony with the way God created this world. Amen. In closing, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Freedom to live under His reign according to His way. We do not have to come up with new rules and we do not have to follow some other person or religion's rules. We are free to follow Christ and His way. Do not give up your freedom and joy in Christ. Do not go back to the elemental things of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things will not accomplish righteousness for you, but instead will only draw you away from Christ if you place your hope in them. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for Christ who has won the victory to the glory of the Father and for the good of Your people. Father, would You protect us in this church that we might know and believe the truth and that we would live in the joy and freedom that Christ has purchased with His blood. In Jesus' name, Amen.